gentlemen welcome to the very first episode of the brand new rounding the earth podcast for those who may not be aware rounding the earth is a very popular newsletter uh, series on a website called substack written by applied statistician and educator matthew crawford uh, topics of dis discussion range from analysis of conventional wisdom to bitcoin and everything in between and of course more recently the covid19 pandemic to quote the substack's official description most media is still either subservient to present-day powerful interests or is heavily biased by prejudice for old ideas whose deprogramming is required to achieve true updating of our understanding of the world we live in. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis, and I will be your host for today and hopefully for many episodes to come. I'm a musician, a recording and performing artist and music producer based in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, America's hat. My primary passion is performing original music on stage, which requires the ability not only to speak to a crowd, but also to listen and seek to understand them. Over the last two years, I found myself applying that same process in a whole new context as I work to expand my knowledge of the world we live in to help make sense of the COVID-19 public health crisis and all its twists and turns. I love to learn from people with different areas of expertise, and that's led me to work with the Canadian COVID Care Alliance in various media-related roles, and most recently as a writer and editor. I've also had the tremendous pleasure of teaming up with a group of over 100 like-minded individuals from various walks of life in the form of Operation Uplift, where I work as an administrator for the Campfire Wiki project. That brings us to today, which would not have been possible without the moral and intellectual support and most importantly friendship that has kept us all sane, healthy and motivated to continue doing what we can to improve the state of the world. Lastly, thank you to each and every one of you tuning in either live now or after the fact because it's curious, engaged world citizens like you that keep the wheels turning. Now, without further ado, please allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth and my co-host for the podcast, a true community leader, Matthew Crawford. How are you, Matthew? Uh, great. Thanks, Liam. Um, are you excited? First episode of the new format of Rounding the Earth. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm always just sort of ready to dig into a good conversation. Well, we've got some, uh, we have a pair of very good conversationalists joining us today. So to kick off our uh, first roundtable discussion, please welcome Dr. Jessica Rose, PhD, and Chris Masterjohn, PhD. Hello. Hello. I <laughs> um, now, there are some people, many people here will know who you two are, will have been familiar with your work. Um, but for those who may not be, uh, I would love if you could introduce yourselves. You want to go first? Oh, me first? Okay. I'll go right. <laughs> As per the old uh, ladies first, I suppose. Well, hello, and, and thanks, Liam and Matthew, for, uh, for having me on the first episode. I'm honored, and it's going to be a great time. Um, 
I, I am one of the people, uh, I suppose, very involved publicly in fighting the narrative uh, these days, the COVID-19 narrative. I do this by analyzing data, however. Um, I have a background in applied mathematics, immunology, computational biology, biochemistry, and uh, molecular biology. I have degrees in those things. So I, I guess I'm a little bit qualified to talk a little bit about this stuff. But uh, my claim to fame um, is the analysis of the VAERS data, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System data. So um, I have a substack as well. Uh, some people might have read. And, and I'm also a musician, Liam. I was sure just seeing that. that. I had no idea. <laughs> I've been in bands. I have an album with a band that I uh, formed in Israel. And I also, I'm, I'm more of an independent artist now, which is the link I sent. But uh, yeah, we got a jam one day, my friend. <laughs> oh, we're going to do it. There's a whole new world of collaboration to come. This is so exciting. Yep. All right. Well, I'm also honored to be here. I have a PhD in nutritional sciences. I write, you know, more broadly uh, about harnessing the power of nutrients since the COVID pandemic, I've been very active in writing about COVID. I, I call my substack the analytical calm in the eye of the COVID data storm because I've been trying to focus in on what seem to be the kind of overlooked little tidbits that make most of the data completely useless noise. Um, but, you know, more broadly, I, I try to uh, use my scientific expertise to kind of go into scientific detail and mechanisms of things and try to understand new practical ideas that people can use to um, help help themselves on their way through their journey towards vibrant health. And I believe in free speech, bodily autonomy, medical freedom, and that science is anti-authoritarian. So here I am on this panel. Well, it's a funny word you use there, science. It sort of seems like, depending on who you ask, the, that word has sort of evolved into about a million different meanings, depending on what's most convenient for any given person. So let's kick off the conversation with that topic. I will ask you simply, what is science? Matthew, what is science? Okay, uh, and, and, and yeah, this whole uh, means different things to different people. Um, it, it's important to make words useful. Words need to, to mean things, but it, it, it's a tricky thing to pin down. Sometimes because we have this uh, this tree of knowledge, this you know philosophy pursuit of knowledge and all these things, and and this one branch that got named uh, science. Um, but uh, I think sometimes people go back and rename the whole tree science, uh, or, or they try to uh, use whichever part of it uh, seems convenient. But um, yeah, may, maybe maybe the best definition of science is specifically the process of that involves framing and then testing a hypothesis in order to improve our understanding of the world. And it's, it's one form of knowledge generation. So it's a process, not an entity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, process and, and, um, process is a good word. Uh, what's another good word? I, I, and I think that we should bounce this around because, uh, I, I think that there are, uh, that looking at it from different angles, we can probably describe it a little bit differently and that we should, in order to distinguish it from from some things that aren't science that people might call science. Okay, well, Chris, how would you add on to that? What's your definition of science? 
Well, I, I thought it would, was interesting just uh, in the moment to look up the etymology of the word. And it uh, comes from the Latin meaning to separate one thing from another, to distinguish, or from the Greek meaning to split, rend, and cleave. And to me, that, that appeals a lot because I, um, you know, I, I also think it's interesting in that vein that the word semantics, which people often use to dismiss something as obviously unimportant if it's semantics actually comes from the Greek, which in the modern Greek means important. Um, so semantiko means important in Greek. And so I think it's very funny that um, in our culture, we tend to say, you know, to dismiss um, things that are seen as tedious distinctions. But I think science is all about making tedious distinctions. And I think you see this if you witness um say someone's doctoral defense it's called the defense because there's all these people on the committee or in the crowd who are willing to make all these tedious distinctions that the average person would dismiss as unimportant but are seen as being extraordinarily significant in the context of science and so i think science really is about you know you could look at the world and just feel something about it or you could start picking it apart and saying, hey, this thing is different from that thing. How do we understand the nature of this? What defines this piece of the world, that piece of the world? How do they fit together? What is the cause and effect sequence? And so I think more broadly, it is the process of trying to tease apart all the things that we take for granted and understand them in much finer detail. And in doing so, learn not only new things about the world, but also new questions to ask and to ever define things in improved detail and to ever ask more questions about the nature of the way things work to come to a better understanding, which in turn generates new questions and the process goes on. Well said, what, what do you think, Jessica? I, I just adore that you you looked up the etymology because that's <laughs> you and I are like really saying my mother is a linguist, so I get it from her. So um, just to add to that, because that was wonderful, uh, I think science is questioning. It's like the ever-flowing dynamic questioning, give and take. Uh, you know, we, we do have solid answers, I would say, which kind of act as, uh, as the platforms from, from which we build more information. But sometimes those platforms have to be... Uh, dismantled like you know we all know of examples of that in history like maybe one day we're going to prove the earth is flat hey um, <laughs> could be could be <laughs> well when we realize we're in a simulation then yeah i think that's for another topic right <laughs> i'm so silly i'm sorry <laughs> if i could jump in um i i want to uh, to, to poke at, I, I like where Chris took this. I want to poke at the, the phrase tedious distinctions. I, I want to see if we can, if we can smooth this out, like on some progression, uh, like, like the difference between novice and expert level, because I don't think that, that, um, you know, what goes on in a, like a dissertation discussion um, uh, defense uh, is the same as necessarily what goes on with children. But I think that children do engage in science constantly. I think babies are engaging in science, trying to figure out, you know, what's going on in, with the world. Uh, they, they, they may never, um, uh, uh, what's the right word? Um, 
they, they might not see it in the abstract until they begin a science class later, but they're constantly testing hypotheses or, or making distinguish, uh, you know, distinctions between things. So, you know, um, it, I, I guess I would take away the word tedious, except that professional science does happen on that level. It does happen on that level simply because those things which are more common knowledge that everybody figured out as babies or children are no longer tedious. We've all discussed them enough. And so and so then we're pushing at the boundaries. Then we're getting farther and farther away toward more specialization. And that may take us where we want to go with some of the conversation about authoritarianism and, and why science is anti-authoritarian. So and just to, to zoom it back to the most basic, would you say would science also encompass in the early development you know, stage of a baby when they're making a this or that decision? which is essentially a, a one or a zero, and they're experimenting with, if I do this versus that, just at the simplest level, that itself is science as well? Sometimes, uh, maybe not necessarily. There are, there are other forms of, of attempts at knowledge acquisition, and some of it may be you know, modeling heur heuristics. Um, and I, I don't even know where we distinguish you know, what's going on with some of the activities um, but there, but science, it, it is still, it's one form of the knowledge tree. And I bet a lot of it just sort of happens together, you know, in, in ways that are, that are difficult for us to describe. Matthew, could you, this knowledge tree. So if science is one branch, can you list for us or, or, uh, try to visualize for us what some of the other branches are that we might recognize? Um, sure. Uh, mathematics comes to mind. Uh, and, and logic and, and uh, depending on how you draw the tree, some people draw logic and mathematics together. Um, some people don't. Um, uh, you know, I, I, this is one I, again, I think we should uh, look up the knowledge tree because I don't know if I'm going to be able to to say this. Well, this is one of this is one of those semantic distinctions I was talking about. <laughs> do you do you do you bunch them together? Or do you separate them? Um, I think that that if a baby is saying, "Do I do this or?" you know, does this happen if I do this? What happens if I do that? Goes straight to the heart of the of the sort of etymological definition of science to separate one thing from another to distinguish. Um, you know, but but we over time obviously we have different senses of the word. And so science, I think you could in a most general sense would be would be the pursuit of of knowledge and you can you can you know, make make distinctions about whether that is strictly empirical or would also include abstract reasoning. Um, but, you know, and then we've also formalized the scientific method. So I think when, you know, when a typical person thinks of science now, they, they distinguish the formalized scientific method from other forms of knowledge. And then, of course, we obviously have controversy that, that goes right into department names you know so i think that a physicist might take issue with political science peter Thiel likes to say that if you have to add science to the end that's how you know it's not science mm. you, don't, you don't see anyone talking about physics science it's just you know, <laughs> physics is science but they call it political science because they have to defend that it's a science so there's <laughs> there's obviously some you know there to talk about it generally is one thing and to talk about what we mean by science i think usually we mean it in a narrower sense these days. And that's interesting because I've, I've always found it interesting that psychology, for example, 
uh, exists, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, at universities in, in both the, you know, the arts uh, uh, sector as well as the scientific path. So I, 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 but that to me doesn't necessarily suggest that psychology is any less of a science. Um, it, it is interesting. I, I wonder if that's, if that's uh, somehow um, involved in that, in that process of, it, like, what, how would you respond to that? Like, is, is psychology uh, sort of riding that line? Uh, or is that just sort of an administrative respond, I, difference? <laughs> I would respond to that by saying that psychology, uh, you know, in its word roots means the science of the, of the soul. And a materialist would say that, that the soul is pseudoscience. So <laughs> it's really interesting. interesting you bring that up because when I did my undergrad, I was very interested in psychology and it was in the arts uh, faculty. So I was like, but isn't psychology that that was very strong. I remember this today. Isn't that a science? Isn't it? And, and then, you know, there was there were these debates, uh, whether it was that or that. And then there was psychiatry and then da 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 da. So I, I've always thought of it as science. Um, but then again, we're going back to semantics and uh, it, maybe maybe it's a good time to segue into like what the definition of science has become. I don't know. Is it too early for that? <laughs> I, I think. Before we do, uh, I'm going to jump in and throw out some other branches just so that people watching have a sense of, of what we might be talking about. Um, sometimes, and, and it, everybody has drawn the, the philosophy tree a little bit differently. So, uh, you know, take this as an exploration uh, and, and you may like one tree better than another. But, you know, metaphysics, logic, epistemology, religion, ethics, politics, aesthetics, science, and their politics is specifically... Uh, denoted as differently, but uh, it may be that because science uh, is a process that it winds up being, a, you know, applied all over the place. It, you know, it, it's a tree, but we may have uh, branches coming together or intermingling in, in really, you know, fascinating ways at some point in time. So maybe we, it, it this is one of those things where um, words should mean something, but at the same time, um, part of what's fascinating is that you can't overdefine something. And it's the things that you can't over, get away with overdefining that are usually the most interesting anyhow. I'll tell you, it's been I, very interesting Googling and trying to find this knowledge tree you're talking about because I'll, I'll switch over to the tab that I've uh, I've been running through. There's there's like a million different ones and there doesn't appear to be, like, like you said, there doesn't appear to be any one consistent definition of each of these things. So I'm getting just pretty pictures of trees, which is nice too. I, yeah, I some, think... Go ahead, Chris. I think one of the issues is that with the formalization of the scientific method based on experimentation and replication, that anything that is not amenable to being repeatedly observed uh, in the same form over and over again has been relegated to kind of peripheral to science or outside it with a, with a gray zone of the people that have the most repeatable experiments look down upon the people that have the least repeatable experiments. And then anything that is outside of uh, what is amenable to repetition is sort of dismissed as pseudoscience. Um, you know, so there are people who believe that um, every single thing that we're saying could be predicted if you knew neuroscience enough, but there's no evidence of that. <laughs> and so the science of human interaction and, and political science where you can have semi-repeatable phenomena and that you have trends that you can manipulate through 
the electoral system and try to come up with certain outcomes, but there's going to be huge variation because we don't understand human behavior and how people perceive and talk about things in anywhere near the level of detail to make them repeatable in the same form every time. And it's quite possible that, you know, someone who believes in a, in a soul would say that, of course, you haven't done that because you never will, because humans aren't all just material beings. But um, anyone who's a materialist would say, well, we haven't gotten anywhere near near that yet. And so I think that's where this gray zone comes in of why would you categorize something as science or a soft science or outside of science is just based on how amenable is the phenomenon you're studying to be re to be repeated over and over again. But obviously these things that aren't easily repeatable are still real. And so there's some, there's something problematic about casting something outside of science because it's not repeatable because so many things of value are not that repeatable. And I think it, I think the better way to approach it is to just acknowledge that our, you know, the scientific method as formalized has some limitations to it. And we might not have the same confidence in something that we declare through means of study that are not repeatable, but that doesn't make it any less valuable to pursue those means of study. We just have to acknowledge their limitations. It also sounds like even if everyone, for the purposes of this thought, do agree what the confines of science are, even then it still sounds like there's an attitude of everyone's asking the wrong question. Everyone thinks everyone else is focusing on the wrong question. Would you say that's the case, like in this phenomenon of like over-specialization? I often think everyone's asking the wrong question. <laughs> <laughs> I concur. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it may be that over-specialization is part of the reason why people begin to, to ask the wrong questions. Maybe over-specialization is, you know, uh, channels people into the forms of questions that they ask um, by the nature of over-specialization. But um, I, I think it's good for people to practice going out to the whole tree and saying, you know, is this the appropriate um, you know, method for knowledge acquisition or, or evaluating the value of something, um, which may be, you know, part of the broader uh, maybe the bigger part of the broader picture. Um, so so now I just want to pop in and, and say that um, I think there are a, a lot, there are many, there are many genuine reasons why people would, would pursue a, what they believe is the right question. Others would disagree on what the right question is, but asking the wrong question is also a very um, sophisticated way of pursuing your own interests. And so one of the um, and I think Ioannidis uh, brought this up in evidence based medicine has been hijacked an article that he had written in where he was basically describing a system that was very good at not needing to commit any fraud because it was so good at asking self-interested questions. And so sometimes, you know, everyone will generally always think that people are asking the wrong question because everyone has their own pet hypothesis. But it's also it's also a very sophisticated way of manipulating the data in your favor to ask what you may know is not the best question from public interest, but is a very convenient question for your self-interest. Goal. Well said. And to try now to 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 I'm going to nail this segue. Jessica was was about to segue us into something which perhaps 
if we wind up hypothetically in a situation where there's people who have spent decades in their career perhaps uh, or even maybe are just starting their career but are particularly interested in what they're doing and perhaps they wind up in positions of influence or authority and then maybe when they're turned to to ask you know what do we do about this situation perhaps if they don't you know go beyond their boundaries of 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 specialty maybe we wind up with some biased or not entirely complete responses to a pandemic would we agree with that premise broadly speaking um now not throwing any stones at anyone here but i found this meme and i thought it was uh very funny so with your permission i'm gonna share it um i think his <laughs> the definition of science, as we've said, can vary from person to person, uh, institution to institution. And I'm not one to dismiss anyone's, you know, concept of what it's supposed to be. And I think each should be given its uh, chance at, at, at glory. So with this as our transition, uh, what do we think, Jessica, about, uh, about perhaps how science has gone wrong, if it has? Uh, well, I mean, it, it's, it's now highly politicized. Uh, it's, um, yeah, I, I don't even know how to start talking about it because, I mean, maybe just with specific examples, um, if, if every, uh, governing body, uh, wasn't, I, I guess the word is captured, then I don't think we would be where we are just to look at it from a very broad perspective, like, Let's say that um, the interests lied in public health and uh, promoting science, knowledge, um, non-agendized uh, grants, you know, the whole nine yards. Like, we wouldn't be where we are because this whole thing is, is a politicization of, of, a, of a virus, I suppose. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, now, could you could you explain what you just described the the institutional capture? Um, you know, us four in here are are familiar with it because of the amount of time we've spent trying to understand it, and of course for you guys, time in the field. But there's probably at least some people who have no idea what that means and how it applies to uh, the COVID pandemic. Actually, or if, if I could jump in, I, I'd like to ask a question that I think precedes that that will help us with that exploration. Um, one question that I would want to ask. Uh, for anyone here is, is describe how science impacts the world. Because I think the moment we begin yeah. with that description, it becomes more apparent um, why what is going on is going on. So, you know, when you think, how does science impact the world? You know, how, how do you describe that, Kreska, Jessica or Chris? Well, it's not now. That's what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> it's not impacting Okay. We, okay. And, and, and I, I, I know where you're coming from. I, I, I basically agree. I know, I'm Le Leading up to now, you know, the, the past century, how, how was science affecting the world? How, you know, what, what would most people be thinking of? What would most people connect it to as to how it affects everybody's lives? Progress. Technology. Now, yeah, technology. Okay, progress and technology. These were exactly the words I was thinking. Lifespan. <laughs> You know, we passed um, the quiz. <laughs> right. Well, so, yeah, and most people are terrified of death, as we've all learned in the last two years. So a lot of people are. And I was thinking about this the other day, like um, humans aren't meant biologically to live as long as we live now. It's not normal. 
from the from the get-go. I, I think people have forgotten that. So we way outlive our natural lifespan already. So all this time that we have is bought. You know, we're lucky. We're really lucky because a lot of people live to be 100. So it's like, I think that's a huge part of it, like extension of the the length of life, but not the quality. That's, that's what's really been missing. Uh, I went on a bit of a tangent there, but yeah, it's... Well, I'm curious though, because I haven't heard that. I've I've heard people, you know, kind of pull out of nowhere that humans. Some people believe humans lived, in fact, far longer before. I, I don't know what any kind of basis there is for that. But could you? I haven't necessarily heard beyond just you know general health, hygiene, medicine. I haven't heard the notion that we're actually exceeding what we're supposed to be um, uh, maxing out our life at. What is what is the the age that is kind of expected or historically? Without like modern medicine and hygiene and, and antibiotics and all that stuff, uh, which are, you know, the modern miracles, um, I don't know, 40, 50, 60, I mean, uh, elders. Yeah, but that's, I think you're, I think you're looking at average life expectancy driven by high infant and child mortality. Mm. Or I'm thinking way back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, what I've, what I've seen from, I think it's hard to know for sure in archaeology, archaeological records, but I think it's generally thought that the, you know, the life expectancy of uh, ancient hunter gatherers was 30 or something like that. That was because there was a lot of infants and children that died. But also, if you look at the earliest, um, the earliest actual records that I know of. Uh, would be the church records of the Russian contact Inuit and Aleut, where the Russian church had had evangelized them and baptized them, but not changed their way of their hunter gatherer way of life at all. And those kind of support that because there were people who lived in their uh, well, what they had was death certificates and baptismal certificates, and there were people who lived in their into their nineties. Wow. Quite a few, but there were also many, many uh, children and infants who right. died, right. not even necessarily of infectious diseases, but often by accident because their means of pursuing uh, food was sometimes wildly dangerous. Um, but All right. so maybe I'm wrong about that. Like that—that's really interesting. They lived into their nineties, so well, it I, sounds I, like individual lifespans well, could go also, quite long. Yeah. Also, we like in biblical times, we know that people were li living at least through their 80s because uh, it says so in the Psalms where it's, it's said that the lifespan of man is uh, 80, 80 in a decade or so. All right. That so maybe you change what I said to people are trying to maintain <laughs> the amount of time that humans have lived. I don't know. I, I still feel... Well, like I, I think to your point, we have saved a lot of infants and children from dying who might not have made it very far if they... who are You know, we have... Like, if you have high infant and child mortality, you do sort of, like, weed out the weakest among the population. So it's probably quite difficult to make someone who genetically might have been predisposed to die as a child live into old age. So that would, that would kind of support the same thrust where you're going with it. Now to take this tangent, return it back to technology and progress. Those were our key words, were they not? That's right. Yep. <laughs> you know, okay. and 
I, I would I would just add the, a personal anecdote of that's what I was going to say too. And and the other thing that came to mind was, uh, it's almost as if science gives permission to try new things. So first, science tries it, whatever that means, and then the rest of the world takes it on. Um, personal anecdote: the, the way this has affected me the most is with my mom, who um, for a few years suffered from a rare kind of cancer, and there was a. Uh, uh, an immunotherapy product. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, I don't know the specific one, or I'd love to learn more now. But anyway, available from a pharmaceutical company in clinical trials only, and um, very, very expensive. And she was able to, to crowdfund the first, um, you know, thirty thousand or so. Um, but eventually, the money ran out, and they and they did not opt to continue uh, treatment because she wasn't paying for it anymore. And that was because it was in this clinical trial stage and was not yet available in our supposed universal healthcare up here in Canada. Um, so, so that, that's what came to mind when you ask what does, like, what's the role of science? Like what, what impact does it have? Um, but what, what, what thought were you pursuing there, Matthew? Well, I, I, I wanted to get to a discussion of technology. I, I think that's that is the way most people, you know, connect the impact of science in their mind. It has many other impacts, but that's that's the one that that is just it, it's overwhelmingly apparent to us as we look around the world. Right. And then get to the root of uh, what is technology, um, which I, I think um, I, I have a different definition of technology than I think the one that is the one commonly swimming around in a lot of people's minds. Uh, which my definition of, of technology is economic. Um, technology is that which um, we would prefer to invest in it to get the outcome. In other words, um, technology, in some sense, technology is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, it, it is something that is necessarily utility, necessarily utility increasing, at least to some beholder. And then we wind up with the question, you know, once we have sort of, you know, uh, 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 judgment by an individual a uh, agent, um, then we have the interaction between individuals and the group. And I think that, that this is where, um, you know, science technology, um, you know, runs away into the problems that we're having to face now, which is that, um, you know, th there are some technologies which are highly decentralized, very universal the wheel. Everyone understands what it is and can make use of it. And then there are technologies that are very, very um, centralized. Only a handful of people understand them and know how to make use of them. And, and there may even be propaganda shields that keep other people from penetrating what the actual understanding of that science is. And that creates, um, you know, a necessarily um, adversarial situation between a small group of people and the larger world. And so, you know, the, the, these conflicts, we can begin to talk about, we can talk about um, uh, capture of institutions from there. Um, but I think it, it's, it's sort of the ante that begins the game where you know that the person going for the ante is the person that you might call in the community the most psychopathic. <laughs> to put it lightly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so Jessica, what is this capturing of institutions you speak of? Um, well, to me, it's it's the non non essential functioning. Like, if something has a function, it should exert that function. And if the function is to 
regulate biologicals such that uh, when they get introduced to a species, the species doesn't get harmed, um, you know, if, if they're not functioning in that way, then, I mean, they could be captured, they could be corrupted. I'm not sure which word I like to use, yet, but um, a lot of people use the word captured, uh, which does imply that something captured them. Uh, which implies that there are overlords, which might be these psychopaths that Matthew just talked about. Um, so yeah, it's it, there, there's a there's a theme in in humanity uh, uh, with regulatory bodies being captured, and everybody knows about these. I mean, it, it's it's why we we saw this economic crash in two thousand seven and eight. Um, and, you know, it's, it's why it, I think none of this would have happened, not for the FDA being, uh, being captured. Um, I'll use that word. Because if they were, in fact, like I just said, doing their job, if they were the stopgap between the big pharma companies, the producers of the biologicals and the vaccines and the people, then there's absolutely no way that, for example, these COVID-19 injections would have gotten into so many human beings. So, yeah, Earlier, um, uh, various ones of us were looking up definitions or etymologies of, of science. And uh, I want to share uh, an internet search that I performed right before we got started. And I'm really just looking up at it now. But um, these definitions of science seem to steer toward what Jessica is talking about. And that's a, it's a little bit frightening. It's, it's very concerning. We should think through what this means. But here are some of these are coming from, internet. <laughs> and, and these are coming from Merriam-Webster. Knowledge, yeah, knowledge, knowledge or a system of knowledge covering general truths or the operation of general laws, especially as obtained and tested through scientific method. Next one a department of systemized knowledge as an object of study. Example, the science of theology. Next one, something such as a sport or technique that may be studied or learned like systematized knowledge. Example, have it down to a science. Um, I, I'll do one more. A system or, or method reconciling practical ends with scientific laws. Example, cooking is both the science and an art. Okay, I'm going to kind of skip the last two and, and go back to the first two. There's a whole bunch here, though. Uh, but the first two seem to focus on um, institutionalization rather than the process. They, all, they almost like assume the process is truth and stop talking about it as science and then focus on, on you know, like building it up as if as if you know knowledge is what we get from science and science is an institution right so nothing else is knowledge immutable it, yeah and and there's this word truth thrown in right like as if the, like this is the final say you know what what, what is this truth whereas you know my i think of the the tree of knowledge as as you know or the the tree of philosophy as as entirely concerned with the truth without really having any end. If there were an end, we'd, we'd all shut up. We'd, we'd be, we'd stop playing this game of thinking it through. <laughs> you guys are using a lot of big words and big ideas and I love it. I'm going to cut to the chase on, on an example. <clears throat> Wait, cause when we talk about institutional capture at the more practical level, 
Um, uh, I want to I want to give an example of this. I'm going to introduce the uh, the viewers to our project, the Campfire Wiki. Campfire Wiki is a wonderful resource, both for the people who can, you know, check into it and access information, but also for those of us who are trying to collect, collate, and then publish information. And this is something that I discovered that uh, a lot of people, I think, don't know. And it's simply a matter of fact. So in the United States, you've got the National Institutes of Health, which operates under the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, if I'm not mistaken. And the National Institutes of Health is the parent agency of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which is run by our friend, Dr. Anthony Fauci. And again, I'm not throwing any specific shade at anybody, um, unless they earn it later. But um, there is this thing called the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health, which while the NIH doesn't themselves, uh, themselves receive, you know, any kind of payments that might be considered science bending, if I can coin that, um, this foundation certainly does. And this is a list of the uh, of, of some of the organizations. Um, you'll notice a lot of pharmaceutical companies. Um, and I'm going to jump over just really quickly. And we're going to play a quick game called Who's the Donor? Yay! And yay. <laughs> this is going to be, if, if all goes according to my plan, a recurring theme of this show when we, when we have time. So this is the 2019 donor report from the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health. So we're going to, you each get one guess. Who is the sole person or, or organization, I should say, that occupies this top tier of $15 million or more in donations? Is it Matthew? an individual or an organization? It's an organization. Okay. This is uh, who donates to the NIH? This is, I believe, to the, the cumulative... That's correct. So the foundation for the NIH accepts donations year to year from the people on this list, which are then used to support the activities of the National Institutes of Health. Are pharmaceutical organizations on the list? It'd be hard to find one that isn't. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess Gates Foundation. I was right? going to guess either Gates Foundation or Rockefeller. Jessica? I was going to say the Gavi or the Bill and Melinda Gates. Drum roll, please. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Now, that's important for reasons we don't need to get into too much now, but they basically are pharmaceutical. They are, they, they, they have a lot of pharmaceutical holdings. It's, everyone knows this. HR. That's capture. Now, we're going to do just one more quick round of this. Uh, we're going to jump to 2020. Who, <laughs> I'll just tell you right off the bat, it's still the Bill and, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation <laughs> in the top tier. But the second tier... The $5 million to $10 million range. Let's hear your guesses. What is one pharmaceutical company that we find in there? Matthew. Pfizer. Jessica? Pfizer. Chris? Yeah. <laughs> Pfizer. Oh! Uh, oh, look, they're there. Oh, wait, we're right because it's There's one five of them. Of them. <laughs> you got GlaxoSmithKline, big pharmaceutical company and vaccine maker, including a COVID-19 vaccine. Little, welcome little Trust, the funder of all things science. <laughs> yep, the Welcome Trust, essentially the British version of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, if you like. Johnson & Johnson, who we know well for their own COVID-19 vaccine product. Um, Eli Lilly. Same deal, monoclonal antibodies, and yes, you got Pfizer. So just for those who are watching who maybe can't put, or up to now, couldn't put a practical face to what we're talking about, this is an example of how this literally may occur. 
uh, if it has occurred. Thank you for uh, 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 obliging me there. <laughs> so, so I think that um, I think one thing to keep in mind, I, I think I think chasing the money, following the money is is an important thing to follow when trying to understand how to follow the power. But following the money isn't always necessarily following the power. And I think one very interesting way to look at that is uh, there was a book written by a renowned histor uh, historian of science, Lily Kay, called The Molecular Vision of Life, Caltech, the Rockefeller Foundation, The Rise of the New Biology. It was written in 1993. And um, she traced how the Rockefeller Foundation had basically completely captured molecular biology and nourished it to become what it became and prioritized it over many other sciences you know so we could have we could have emphasized um ecological and organismic and all these other views um you know or or even well i won't go into all the different ways we could have seen the human but they prioritized molecular biology for a very specific purpose which was that they that they had a guiding belief that most social ills were caused by the progress of technology exceeding the progress of social control and social control being the benevolent practice of the elite to control the behavior of the masses. And so they said the reason we have divorce and prostitution and this and poverty and this and that is all because we haven't developed our science of controlling the masses benevolent as they're been benevolent benefactors as rapidly as we've developed technology for them to hurt themselves. And I wonder what Melinda thinks about that theory. <laughs> I'm sure she likes it. And so um, they, but, so th they prioritize molecular biology, not, you know, and the, that doesn't make molecular biology myth mythological or anything like that. It's obviously very real, but they prioritized a specific way of, of funneling uh, that science to, to its current state because they thought that, because they viewed it as easy to see how they could control people if they could reduce all humans to the sum of their molecules and like which receptor can i activate to do this and which chemical can i inject into the human to achieve that outcome and what's interesting though is her analysis of the power structure where the rockefeller foundation had poured 25 million dollars and of course that's much larger in current in current um dollars but between 1932 and 1959 they put in $25 million dollars of support but during that time they were only funding two percent of the science and yet they had infiltrated all of the um all of the uh admissions boards and other like university bureaucracies all of the um journal boards etc and so they kind of had their people on the seat of of any position that could control the flow of other funds and the flow of information and the flow of publication. And so they leveraged that 2% of funding to achieve a vastly disproportionate amount of power over the system. Okay. But interestingly, before this conversation, I looked up some facts about um, funding of science. 
And th this is an interesting interplay. Um, I found out some things that I didn't know. Um, one is just sort of a basic number I'll throw out from like the early 1970s to 2015. The amount of federally funded science uh, from you know U.S. federal government uh, grew from 13 billion to 350 billion dollars. And now I, I I found a graph that broke down the different uh, you know increases in that and the the greatest by far by far the greatest. Uh, total investment in, in the science uh, was in the biological sciences. Um, and and it, it, it's literally greater than the sum of the next three combined, you know, way more in biology than in engineering, even though um, like overall in, in the entire pie, there's a negative return on investment. And that's mostly human genome project aside, um, the rest of, of all that investment has been dramatically negative sum unless, unless it's positive sum for just a centralized group, which is why I wanted to, you know, bring up that idea of centralized versus decentralized technology, which is that, um, you know, that's billions of dollars every year going to um, the interests of a small handful of people. Well, I thought I'm, for a minute people were just making their money back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm interested how that interacts with what I was saying, because it sounds to me like you're saying that it's negative investment if you look at it from the perspective of the industry. So actually, the vast majority of funds flowing in are not getting the power, but rather there is a small group that is controlling um, their power over the larger flow of funds with their money, right? So there's, it seems like, it seems to me that um, money is is like the fuel of the engine of power. And so if you don't have the power, you can throw money at whatever. And it's sort of like, you know, trying to travel across the United States on a barrel of gas, like you can't do it. But if you have a car, you know, that, that gas becomes very powerful. And the more gas you have, the further you can go. What is what's your analysis of of um, of that disproportionality? Is are you suggesting that there's some large sum of money that is maybe five percent of the total or fifty percent or whatever, but the this small network has leveraged their portion of the funds to such an amount of power that they're basically the beneficiaries of the rest of the funds? Okay. Um... I, I'll put this two ways. One, if you have something that is self-generative, then you can create feedback loops and then you don't need fund, uh, government funding. So whenever it is you see disproportionate amounts of government funding, that means that you have disproportionate amounts of, um, of things where there are not feedback loops. And if there's not a feedback loop, then whoever is benefiting is is sort of a you know quiet private crowd. Um I would say that there is a there's a game theory going on between uh, the people who have control and whatever their interests are and, and everybody else. And that government funding specifically is this sort of cooperation defect button, except that there is uh, sort of a, the what's going on is really only revealed to one side and not the other. So I guess it's not quite a prisoner's dilemma um, once one side has the information. It's monopolization of information. And I'm thinking this through real time here, trying to trying to, to pinpoint what's going on. But it's a monopolization of information, which means that really one side has control. If, if they're the only side with the control and they're the ones giving the money, 
It's just a taxation. So in other words, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well said. That's a, that's a misquote, but yeah, I know. Uh, I realized that <laughs> as I was typing it. Yeah. Well, it is interesting because uh, again, just from my, from my, uh, the focus of, of, uh, I, I research, uh, from the money side, I look at conflicts of interest and mostly I like making lists. Um, uh, so for example, if, if we are, uh, going through, let's say a hundred annual reports from, you know, a hundred organizations and, uh, there's one, two, three, four, five organizations that show up on virtually every single one. I'm not drawing a conclusion from that. I'm saying that means something. Um, and that's been a very interesting uh, process for me of starting to identify not just the, you know, we already mentioned, for example, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, Welcome Trust. A lot of people know those, but there's a lot of other uh, uh, individuals and institutions that you don't think of as being those who who may, you know, control the whole thing from behind the scenes. And like I said, I don't know what that means, but I found it very very interesting seeing names keep showing up and uh and trying to piece together then what that means in terms of what science is coming out of for example the canadian universities here um and in the states as well and um it's, it's so um, so i i think uh bobby kennedy's model in the real anthony fauci bill gates big pharma the global war on democracy and public health um is a little bit simpler and easier to understand. So his model of the right of the um, capture of, say, the uh, NIH and NIAID is basically that the pharmaceutical industry benefits from the basic R&D being done publicly. And they put up a lot of money, but but you know, so does the public. And so the, um, and so there's all this funding going in there, but they've basically captured the benefit by creating this ideology where the purpose of these institutions is to do the R and D that is needed to advance the cause of having good medical science. And what that means in practice is doing the R and D that can then be handed over to pharmaceutical companies for their private property for that private profit for them to kind of take the basic R&D and run with it in developing drugs that then they market and this sort of the flow of money and and patents of course the flow of patents is very important so basically the NIH or NIAIDs uh, CDC whatever it is that's involved in the R&D these public officials will hold patents on the technology and they'll show they'll share joint intellectual property with universities and with pharmaceutical companies and then they all have a common stake that is now tied into this game where public funds go up to do basic r&d that leads to drugs and then the drugs are then handed over to the to the companies for them to develop further and put into trials. And then the interested parties are also the ones regulating the drugs. And so since they have intellectual property in the system and they have financial benefit in the system, they have a financial interest in approving those drugs and recommending those drugs and putting those things on the 
childhood vaccine schedule and whatever. And then, and, but the vast lion's share of the money is just going into the pharmaceutical company's profits, but it becomes, they're so glued together that the interests of the regulators are the interests of the patent holders because they are the patent holders and are in the interests of the, of the universities and are the interests of the pharmaceutical companies. And so I think trying to figure out who's the, the, the ultimate puppet master is very complicated. That model, I think, is very intuitively easy to understand. Well, and, and that does apply directly to uh, what we're going through right now. Um, what some people might not know. So there's this patent dispute exactly like you're describing between the National Institutes of Health and Moderna because um, these, these organizations have been working together on various forms of the, uh, the coronavirus uh, and other vaccine technology. Going back to this particular post says at least 2015, um, I understand it to be even prior to that. And so you're right, trying to identify puppet masters often is also the wrong question, uh, back to that point. But um, what this does suggest is, yeah, like it, is, it, it asks the question, when we're now dealing with uh, Moderna uh, uh, vaccines being approved for younger and younger age groups. Is that for a reason other than it's the best medical option to make available for people in those age groups? And then in a lot of cases, force them to take. I think, I think Kennedy's argument is very compelling on that front, which is that getting the vaccines on the childhood CDC schedule is the one and only way to transfer the liability shield from the PrEP Act yes. to the 1986 National Vaccine Child, National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, where the PrEP Act um, is dependent on emergency authorization and is, and that in turn is dependent on not having any treatments for the disease. And so you have to transfer the protection against getting sued from the PrEP Act to the 1986 Act in order to be able to have patented drugs for the disease come out that you also make money from. And the only way you can do that is to get the vaccine on the schedule for children and or pregnant women. And you also make like a something, one point something billion dollars a year in profit. It's an attractive yeah. sum. It's There's very, that. It's a very compelling business model. Just yes. get it on the child's and schedule. What, yeah, it's precisely. <laughs> I think if people knew how much of their money was in this model, they'd be uh, astounded. Because basically what's happening now is people are funding their own injuries and... Uh, I mean, yeah, that, that, that 1986 thing, uh, or the, the liability, uh, you, don't, you don't have any liability thing, uh, was why VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, came into uh, existence, because it was like a trade-off. Okay, you won't have liability, but you got to collect some uh, adverse event data. So, yeah. So th this gets me back to, I, I think this, what you just said, helps me take a second crack at discussing the technology problem, the decentralization versus centralization, and, and why we need to sort that out. To, if, if technology is something where we put in a unit of effort or a unit of value and we get out a greater unit of value, um, then we, we automatically have this sort of you know, upward sloping exponential curve of growth of value. 
uh, growth of utility. Um, if what happens is you have people who control the levers, they can have that, that upward curve while everybody else actually has a downward curve. Right. And, and, and you have this um, and this is where, you know, technology is in the eye of the beholder. And if you let people sort of separate themselves with centralized interests on this level, we're always going to have personal interests. That's that's always going to be the case. But on this level where we're talking about the control of, you know, so many billions of dollars of funds, then what you can have is the entire rest of society decreasing in value. It's a natural tendency toward collapse at that point when we look at you know what what the interests actually are that are at play which which you know we can't mind read we can only speculate but if you shake up the world if you're the people who've been controlling the levers of money that have the ability to shake up the world you can come in and i don't know buy up hundreds of thousands of acres of farmland at at cheaper values or or sell them when they're when they're at their highest values or whatever it is that you might do to uh, you know, gain larger toehold over the entire world economy. That's important enough that we need to be working on it. We need to be working well, on I, system I, balance. I, I think, um, I think a, a fascinating um, historical example of this is, you know, if you look at the 1986 Act and why it got passed in the first place, uh, it wasn't, I don't think it had anything to do with campaign contributions or anything like that. And it was all about the threat of we won't make any vaccines anymore unless you give us this liability shield. And so why did people care? Um, they cared because they thought that vaccines were this completely unique technology that they would be seeing death all around them if they didn't exist. And I'm not meaning to say that vaccines have never saved any lives, um, you know, but it's, it's, it's fascinating to me to look at the history. If you look at the mortality charts for all of the, all of the um, childhood diseases that are vaccinated against, um, the vaccine generally wiped out the incidence of those diseases after the mortality rates had largely by, been wiped out by other things. And there's lots of debate, uh, in some cases, un, unjustified consensus over what wiped out those mortality uh, rates. And a lot of people attribute it just to hygiene and things like that, which I think is, you know, play a partial role. Um, but if you go back and you look at America prior to America or the UK prior to World War II, um, there was enormous interest in nutrition as a means of preventing infectious disease mortality, as well as as well as uh, morbidity and mortality, uh, infectious diseases as well as their morbidity, morbidity and mortality. Vitamin A was referred to as the anti-infective vitamin, and uh, during the basically from the 1920s through 1945, there was a 25 fold increase in cod liver oil imports into the United States. And all of the advertisements that promoted the use of cod liver oil were saying that they should be used for measles and mumps and rubella and all these other uh, and various other infectious diseases because the scientific data was showing that you could use it to reduce the morbidity and mortality from those diseases. And that was true. There were numerous 
trials, for example, showing that cod liver oil dramatically reduced mortality from measles. And I think the dramatic increase in the use of cod liver oil over that period, consistent with those clinical trials that were done, was part of why the mortality for those diseases was nearly wiped out. And what got rid of the interest in nutrition for that purpose was originally the advent of antibiotics during World War II, where the military uh, industrial, you know, the the growing military industrial complex at that point had basically developed um, antibiotics centrally. And then those appeared as miracle drugs. And of course, they did certainly save many lives, but they also kind of obliterated um, from the the national conscious or the global consciousness that you could use nutrition to reduce your risk of mortality. So like, you know, to the point where um, if you look at doctors, like the next generation of doctors, uh, just in surveys um, after World War II, they reported remembering getting cod liver oil as a child, but they couldn't tell you why. Huh. And so not like none of and so th- these are the people, right, who are basically responsible for people's health and for lowering people's mortality. And they were part of that because they were fed this thing as a kid. But they had no idea that the whole reason that they were fed that as a kid was because it was known from clinical trials that the nutrients in that reduce your risk of of more of morbidity and mortality from infectious diseases. And so we carved out the na- this national consciousness that there were two means only of not dying of an infectious disease. One was a vaccine and one was an antibiotic. And so by the time 1986 rolls around, Wyeth, who became Pfizer, says, yes, our vaccine, our DTP vaccine is killing one out of 300 babies um, that, that, get, that get it. And, uh, and we're losing a lot of money compared to our profit. And so therefore, we're not going to make any vaccines anymore if you don't give us a total liability shield. And no one is willing to say, fine, take your take your unsafe vaccines and shove them up your butthole because I'm going to eat right. You know, and, and that is because of the decades from World War II up until 1986, where it was erased from people's minds that there was anything self-empowering that they could do to protect themselves from disease. And it was injected into people's minds that if you don't want to die of a disease, you have to go to your masters and receive, you know, either this injection or this pill. And that's the end of it. So, Chris, do you think that's like a, uh, I'm not sure I'm getting, this is going to come out right. Do you think that's a generational memory thing? Because it occurs to me now, like within one more generation, natural immunity won't exist anymore if this persists. And that's crazy. Like I'm talking oh, yeah. like, you know, a, a few years down the road, people will will think it's normal. This is how human beings operate. We need to get injected every nine months or we're gonna die. Think about it. I can it's, really it's- see that happening. If, if it's the same, processes that you've just described which are true do you think like it's it's just a we have short-term memory problems or what <laughs> like 
I, th I think it's worse than that. And it's faster because now the model is there's an app for that. Right. So now the model is like the now vaccines are yeah. no longer built on the model of the the way they were historically developed. Like this is a major killer. Let's spend this enormous amount of time trying to figure out how to solve it. Now it's it's based on there's an app for that. It's going to become there's a vaccine for that in the way that people just expect this technological innovation to just pop up all over the place for every conceivable problem that you have. Um, we've been conditioned to expect technology to come at that pace. And now we've been taught that we have this, you know, I mean, I would assume that they're going to, to pursue plug and play approval now that they have this framework yeah. where they can just go into the computer and, and edit the, yeah, mRNA yeah, sequence and pop out a new vaccine, yeah. right? Like that, yeah. you see that with the variant vaccines that are coming out. I think we're going to be acculturated to have this pace of, and it's it's very much been like unified into the smartphone in in, in yeah. the cases where you have to show your vaccine card on your app to get into the restaurant. Like it's the mentality is that it's just like an app on a smartphone. So there's going to be a new vaccine for a new problem, and it's. And the way that, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll go to every problem in life, I think, because I was my, uh, I had a friend who went through dental school and gave me her, her textbook on uh, dental pathologies. And I'm reading this, this chapter on dental cavities, or dental caries, as they call them. You're and so it, <laughs> it goes on to talk, it talks about how you get a cavity because you always have a process of mineralization and demineralization going on at the same time. And when demineralization exceeds mineralization, you get a cavity. And it doesn't you know, it have to lot... do with bacteria strains too. Yeah, well, this is the thing. So they say demineralization is driven by Streptococcus mutans, right? And they they never tell you that there's enormous body of science about how nutrition impacts the the what flows through the dental tubules um, inside the tooth to mineralize the tooth. Like there's science known about this, right? They don't talk about any of it. They state the principle that it's these two balancing things. And then they say the reason that dental caries haven't been eradicated is because no one has developed a vaccine for streptococcus mutants. And oh, I'm like, Lord. well, you can also tell people how to eat. But anyway, um, <laughs> you know, I think that mentality is going to be is going to be borrowed and and is and is going to be put on. You know, there should be a vaccine for tooth decay. There should be a vaccine for I bumped my elbow. There should, you know, there should be a vaccine for everything, and you should have an app for it that tells everyone else that you got that vaccine. You know? There has to be a huge proportion of the human population that won't accept that programming. I mean, the old people won't. I mean, I guess you know, old people are going to expire soon anyway. But like, there even have to be some younger generational, you know, people who aren't going to accept that programming just for some reason. I don't know. Maybe. Oh, I agree. Uh, well, I mean, speaking as a 26 year old with a lot, you know, my my range of peers goes pretty much down to, you know, y y ever, uh, the whole range of adulthood. And I've also uh, I've been a, 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 a teacher of younger kids before. So I feel like I've got a decent range, um, broadly speaking. I, I feel as though it's possible the difference is that the younger generation has no memory of being able to push back. There never has been an opportunity to understand well, how to address me, man. Yeah, uh, and and remember also, we we I was talking about this with a good friend of mine, Futch, yesterday. 
um, shout out Foot, who uh, we were talking about how this, this, speaking again of psychology, mental health as a topic has been um, has been a very uh, increasingly prominent um, factor in social uh, um, conversation, you know, conversation about how people are developing. But w what it got to is, oh, so hold on, I've had a history of depression, let's say, I'm now written off forever as potentially having an episode of something. So now I have this built in reflex of well if i'm doing something that others are saying is is crazy or wrong or i'm going against the grain it's just my it's my fault because i'm just a bit crazy you know I, i'm just a bit depressed and i wonder if that's a significant generational barrier legitimate or not um to more individuals who are younger um feeling as though it's on them to speak up and to and to to communicate their boundaries and to stand up for what they need i, I just don't think they it's it's necessarily a tool in the toolbox anymore right remain silent uh you crazy little uh yeah uh it, it's it's certainly a way to bully people it's a way to bully people that's uh sort of eerily long term right it's insidious yeah, yeah. and a, a direct example are... A direct example of that is in Canada, and and I've never wanted to own a firearm. Uh, and Canada is a bit of a different you you know, know? culture. No, I don't. Uh, but that's for other. You know, that's a personal choice. But the way the laws in work uh, in Canada work, as far as I understand, because in my instance, uh, I I do in fact have uh, in the past, you know, depression that's run through my family, and it does disqualify me from that particular oh, wow. uh, activity or right. I, I probably can never. I will never be given permission to own a gun by the government. And, and that's just one example that was really obvious to me that I realized. I cut you off, Chris. I apologize. Uh, no, I, you stopped me from cutting you off. So it's <sighs> right that I wait. But uh, anyway, um, I, I think there are, there are cyclical generational aspects to this and also very long-term cycles. So uh, Strauss and Howe, who they're the authors of uh, The Fourth Turning, which has been very famous, but they have an earlier book, Generations, that goes into much more detail in their generational cyclical theory. And they talk about how society goes through these four generation cycles where there's a crisis, then there's a buildup of institutional authority, and then there is... Uh, during the buildup of institutional authority, society becomes relatively more um materialist and secular in nature and then people who are dissatisfied with that have some sort of spiritual awakening and then the generation after that witnesses the dissolution of the institutional strength and then that leads to a crisis and then it starts all over again right. and they they go through the all of american history tracing this four generation cycle and so we are currently in the uh, the climax, uh, we're reaching the climax of the crisis mode. In fact, in their 1997 book, they referred to the crisis of 2020, um, which was <laughs> decades ago. And they were just, you know, 2020 is an even number. And they were they were predicting that somewhere around 2020, but they literally called it the crisis of 2020 because it was an even number and it sounded good. But but I so I think there's that. And so right now, the young generation is is growing up either uh, coming of age either in the crisis or the very young people are going to come of age during the buildup of institutional authority around the crisis. And it's going to be their children that so we're looking two generations ahead 
to find the people that are going to start questioning the institutional buildup of authority. And so it looks hopeless now. But once I read this book, I felt less hopeless because I realized that it's not a one way trajectory, but actually it's a cycle. And we're just heading into what seems to me because of the generation I'm in to be a shitty part of the cycle. But um, but also, I, I do think there's a much longer term. I don't know if that's also a cycle. I'm hoping no, that I, is too. But but the, like the pub, mandatory public schooling, for example, is is certainly something that has dramatically decreased people's independence and dramatically increased their reliance on a central authority. And the, and I think the internet has further done that because even though the internet in principle decentralizes, if you look at like what Google is doing with you, you ask a question and now it front lines the answer to the question at the top of the page. This is, and the reason I'm thinking of this is because last night I was talking to my cousin and he was talking about how when we were kids, we had to collect from encyclopedias every yeah. state's state bird and state flag and all this into this 50 page book. And he was telling his kids about it and they were like, that's so easy, right? Because they just Google <laughs> yeah, right. the state bird of whatever. Whereas yeah. we had to go to like the encyclopedia and find You it, have to right? go to the library and go through the flippy deck. Right. And, but, you know, but that is, that's sort of reflecting, you know, even the encyclopedia was a centralization of information that made it much, much easier for us. But we also were relying on this one person at the head of the class to tell us what we're supposed to be learning about. You know, yeah. so we from our perspective, like we're like, oh, Google is ruining this. But Google is just leveraging greater the centralization of information that public school was starting. And so there I do think that has to be there has to be a popping of this bubble at some point. But it's not a four generation cycle. It's like a four century cycle or something like that. And if I could just really quickly point out that the, the fact that 2020 is used or in that instance as sort of a benchmark of, of when something may, you know, a cycle may transition. I've noticed 2020 is a year often used as a benchmark. It's all blurry. But what we have here, it's called Mapping the Global Future, Report on the National Intelligence Council's 2020 Project. And it was put together in 2004. Um, the World Economic Forum, their Young Global Leaders inaugural class, their project that they worked on was uh, called something along the lines of the 2020 project. And, you know, I, it, it's, 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 it adds a bit less of a, ironically enough, conspiratorial frame to it if you look at it as well. Simply people could be looking at history and understanding that there's a social cycle coming to an end. And... You know, that's what I've I've heard described of what's happening economically right now is that uh, there's this collapse of sorts going to occur and everyone knows it's inevitable and it's just a matter of catching where it falls and whoever does so comes out victorious and that gives a whole new context to that year. Um, so thank you for sharing that info. So, so Strauss, just to clarify, Strauss and Howe um, were not trying to be prophets or anything. They were actually saying you know, this is a very predictable cycle. And it was, and it's very much based on, we were talking about earlier how, you know, the mat, like what people do is very, not very repeatable, but they're just kind of pointing out that there's predictable patterns. Like you don't like the way your parents did things. And so an overprotective parents tend to generate people that dislike that and are more liberal with their children, et cetera. And so if you take a few of these things, you tend to produce this overall cycle of build up of institution, break it down, build it up, break it down. And so that's their idea. And that yeah. sounds like science. 
and 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 it may be that that something like trying to put a pin in a number like eighty years or four hundred years is it's it, it may be unnecessarily um, you know too round, and it may be that uh, the, you know the next set of cycles. Who knows uh, how um, how the formation of generations will change a little bit going forward in the future. So um, you know people thinking about this don't necessarily have to. Uh, to, to put a pin in, in, in precision like that. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, one thing that you said, Chris, and I'm really glad you brought this forward. Um, these are really challenging conversations. And I think a lot of people are very, very stressed in a moment right now. One of the things that I like to tell people is as frustrated as I am with what's currently going on in the world, uh, I'm, I'm short-term pessimistic, but I am long-term optimistic. And there are there are reasons, you know, we we, we can look through um, whether mechan uh, mechanistic reasons or philosophical reasons for some people, religious reasons, whatever. Um, there are all kinds of reasons to be optimistic about the future. This is not uh, this is not something like um, like a fight that necessarily has to end. On the other hand, we have to be cognizant of critical points of failure and unacceptable systematic risks, right? One of the reasons that we should never rush towards something like an untested new technology is perhaps what some nations appear to be beginning to report, um, unless there's some strange conspiracy to, to report this, um, which would be a, it, its own interesting spin on conspiracy theory. But it looks like a lot of people are starting to report lower birth rates. And that should all shake us to the core because that is a foundational systemic risk to our species, to who we are. And anyone who has a connection with the species, who likes to think, I mean, it, it, to me, it's part of my soul to think about what humanity will go on to do long after I die, right? Like, you know, like to me, that 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 is a part of me, the continuation, the whole process. Um, and But, it, you know, it, it makes me feel better to do it. But we should be talking about unacceptable points of weakness of the entire process. And we should also be talking about the fact that, hey, we can live through something horrible and it, it can be a, you know, a moment in a stream where, where we're, we, what we build, what we do has, has so much more meaning because we, we can write the ship and, and you know, influence uh, the better direction that it takes the next time. I love that. That was so well said. Well, and, and, you know, this this past two and a half years um, uh, has really, you know, speaking as someone who lives in, I, I'm not the demographic that would often question authority. Uh, I wouldn't go against the grain. I would say that I don't I don't so much subscribe anymore to a, any kind of political spectrum as being any kind of basis for anything. But I definitely did ascribe myself as, you know, liberal. Uh, my entire community is, is such. I'm in Vancouver. It's one of the most liberal places on the planet. But the last two years have opened up through crisis, opened up a lot of cracks in the reality that I thought was around me. And I think a lot of people in their own way have experienced that. And it's different for everybody. But um, in, in, in this process, I've heard, and I, I feel this way myself as well, that there's been a whole new, uh, a whole new, set of meanings that have emerged that uh, perhaps were kind of latent in uh, in my person the whole time. 
But now that uh, it's perhaps it's that everything was taken away and now it's given back and now it feels as though there's an opportunity to cherish certain things more or whether it truly is a revised, you know, mission plan for my life. I wonder if you guys uh, could speak to, has, has that been the case for you guys as well? And, and regardless, what do you see as being the fundamental sort of tenets of humanity, at least for yourselves, moving forward as we live and, and perhaps address these issues? Chris. The tenets of humanity? What do you mean by that? Well, what have you, I, I, and tell me if you don't relate, but the, the, uh, in, in the news, you know, you hear stories of, of people who, uh, for, the, for some people, it's travel, like they weren't able to go to their, you know, Mexican retreat that they always go to, so now they value travel more. That's a very superficial example. But um, then for me, it's, it's quite simply the nature of relationships, you know, the, the, the fact that uh, life itself is based on interconnectedness and being with people you care about. So for me, my mission, uh, frankly, has been reset to uh, making sure that I can be as connected with the people around me as possible and continue meeting new people um, to sort of share in this experience we call humanity. So again, that was very broad. I, I don't know if that helped narrow down what I'm trying to ask you, but what do you make of, what do you make of that for your life? Um, yeah, well, I, I think that we should stand for the right of self-determination of the human person. And I think to be a human means to have autonomy and sovereignty over your body and your mind. And I think it, and I think it means to love the people that you're connected to. And so I, I think that means standing up for the right to make your own decisions about what medical injections you put in your body or what ideas you put into your mind. And that it means standing up for the right of yourself and all others to gather and congregate and socially interact and travel um, and I think that should be at the top of our minds. How about you, Jessica? Um, I'm pretty stubborn and immutable on how I feel about uh, being. I don't just mean human being. I mean, like, living beings and, and this this whole, you know, the ecosystem, the, the, the world that we live in. Um, and I completely agree with Chris, of course. I mean... Um, personal sovereignty, even, you know, if you want to go to national sovereignty, these are, I mean, personal sovereignty is more important, but uh, body autonomy, um, at least the illusion of the right to choose. <laughs> Let's, don't get me started on that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, in the last two years, I haven't been able to do a lot of things. Uh, I still, I still can't in uh, in a lot of with with a lot of regards, and I won't change my decision in order to do things. Like I know a lot of people who've gotten injected so that they could go on a trip. I won't do that. Uh, it's it's for me. It would be selling my own selling myself out. Uh, not everybody feels that way, but I. I kind of, uh, I feel like I would hate myself if I went against something that felt so fundamentally um, wrong, to use a moral word. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, 
it's also the most important thing. I don't know about tenants, but like we, we have to try and undo what's happened in the last two years. I'm not trying to say we should get back to anything, but the two years that we've gone through has been an attack on humanity itself. All the things that are important to, to, to being. Uh, we are social beings. Uh, isolation is unnatural for social beings. Um, not touching. I mean, one of the wonderful things about being a human in this carcass is that you can touch it, it's, it sounds a little bit floopy, but, you know, we don't even know if animal, I mean, I, I'm absolutely sure that animals feel touch and that it feels good to them, but we can't ask them. So as a human, you can do that. And it's special. Um, yeah. So I, I don't want to ramble too long because we have to close, but yeah, I think we have to re, re uh, assert our humanity by just literally doing everything that they told us not to do. <laughs> Take off the mask, go hug someone, don't sneeze on people, because that was not <laughs> um, And, you know, play music, sing, love, embrace, procreate, you know, d d do all the things they don't want you to do. Rebel! <laughs> Be a human. That's, that's what I think. That's a nice, simple prescription, but very, very meaningful. Matthew, how about you? Final thoughts? Uh, I feel like my pets tell me they do like me to touch them. There are innumerable directions that we could take this because, uh, you know, I I don't know what uh, tenants of humanity are. Or are um, what I, I feel like we're constantly exploring that and re-exploring that. Um, what I do think about is this um, this interplay between the individual and the community. Um, we're, we're born as individuals because that's the, it, it's something like this co cosmic optimal unit. <laughs> I don't what? know of, of something of, of, of exploration, uh, of, of experimentation, you know, who, who knows what we are. Um, cosmic you know. optimal unit, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And, and, and you know, we, there's also this sort of optimal unit of community too. Um, you know, we know that we have some sort of limitation of, of our social relationships. People call it the Dunbar number, but we expand out and we expand out and we've experimented perhaps in going global with the community. And perhaps um, there are breaking points in the trust that we have to figure out. And we're about to go through another iteration of the cycle. Maybe we are having to bring it back in to the individual and redefine community from there. And as we do, and we're successful, we'll be able to build back to the next layers again. And I do think that we will be successful on that level. Eventually, we'll do it better and better. Um, but but that is its own technological process, I think. And uh, and I think that we are at a breaking point and, and we should be beginning that exploration now, or some of us have begun it uh, within the last few years, but that's where I am with all this. Beautifully said, ladies and gentlemen. Well, uh, we're pretty much at 90 minutes on the dot, so let's bring this to a close. Now, one thing that I find to be very important is to, uh, to interact with the community um, around us whenever we can. And so as such, I want to bring up a comment from our friend uh, Albert Benavidez, welcome to Eagle 88, who on Rumble commented, I heard there are only four things you can do with numbers. Add, subtract, divide, and multiply. It's the order in which you do it in that determines if you need a microscope or a telescope to see the results. How much does light weigh? 
have we sold gold fusion yet? Can we turn lead into gold without blowing up the planet? Are you sure? Because the power of uh, the e lull. So, <laughs> so uh, see that comment and more on our on our Rumble page if you're not streaming there. Um, now, Chris, Jessica, um, where can people find you guys? Chris, go I'm for at, it. I'm at chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com. Wonderful. And Jessica? I'm, I'm at jessicar.substack.com, and I also have a website called Jessica's Universe. Uh, and I have a Twitter account, but don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll make sure those get into the comment or into the uh, description of the video before we uh, publish it. And um, I want to thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, this has been totally wonderful. This is uh, as our first episode. It was a bit of an experiment, and uh, I would say it's been a smashing success in no small part because of your incredible uh, minds spirits and uh just you're just you're smart beautiful people so thank you again well, thank great you. to be here thanks liam thank you so much all right and uh matthew yeah I, I i don't know man i think this this uh totally exceeded uh what i hoped we might accomplish and i hope that we can continue doing talks just like this and obviously we didn't even finish any particular topic so there's lots to you know pick up with chris and jessica later uh, there is a lot um you're you're a natural at hosting Oh, well, you're you're a natural at teaching, Matthew, and that's what you've done for a lot of us. So thanks, Liam. All right, I'm going to kick Matthew out as well, and um, just say my final words now, which is, if you liked what we did here today, in addition to subscribing to Matthew, Chris, and Jessica on all their platforms, links in the description. Um, well, you can find me at www.liamsturgis.com. I make nice music. But more importantly, go to www.roundingtheearth.substack.com, subscribe to the newsletter, and um, also to Rumble, YouTube, and Odyssey to get notifications when we do the next one. Um, yeah, you know, I wrote a nice opening speech and uh, didn't write anything down for the closing. So I'm going to let it go now. And uh, thank you again, ladies and gentlemen, and we will see you. I got notification partway through that there is a clubhouse room on the go right now where we've uh, been invited to come speak uh, to some of our listeners after the fact. I have no idea who's available to do that, but you may or may not see us there. Download Clubhouse, the phone application from either the Google Store or uh, Apple. That is not an endorsement. Uh, all right, this is, where I, <laughs> this is where I officially sign off. Thank you so much, everybody. See you later this week. Mm -hmm.